The Ukrainian History Podcast, Episode 2, Khrushchevsky, the Historian. Hello, and welcome back to the Ukrainian History Podcast with your host, Ethan Newman. I'm glad you could join us. In today's episode, we will be looking at the life and times of one Mikhailo Khrushchevsky, the first president of a modern Ukrainian state and one of the historians who helped reclaim Ukrainian history from the all-Russian theories of his era. Today, he is regarded as the national hero of Ukraine, being praised so highly as if Khrushchevsky Street in downtown Kiev housed the Verkhovna Rada, or Ukrainian parliament, as well as being the site of the 2014 Khrushchevsky Street riots, which helped the Euromaidan protests gain the force necessary to become the revolution of dignity. But more on that topic in a future episode. Now this is all well and good, but Khrushchevsky didn't feature prominently in Ukrainian history until the early 20th century. So why am I covering him now, at the beginning of the podcast? I figured I should tell you about Mr. Khrushchevsky because of his monumental History of Ukraine Ruse, which will be my first go-to source for this podcast until I reach 1658 and the era of the Cossacks. His ten-volume set on the History of Ukraine is widely considered to be one of the monumental works on the topic. It is so comprehensive that it took from 1997 to 2014 just to translate the work into English. I decided that in the interest of informing my audience about any potential biases I may have due to my sources, I will give you some secondary analysis of the author of much of why I am basing this podcast off of. Khrushchevsky has proved somewhat controversial in various historical eras, from his own time, when he was at the vanguard of the revolutions in Kiev, to that of the Soviets, who accused him of being an agent of the bourgeois, while others accused him of Germanophilia during the collapse of the Russian Empire. I'll attempt to give some context regarding his views through the course of this episode. Do remember that much of Khrushchevsky's life and works either occurred during or are written about critical moments in Ukrainian history. Those events will have episodes of their own and will not be discussed here unless necessary to understand Mr. Khrushchevsky. To begin our discussion of Mr. Khrushchevsky, I need to remind you that nobody exists in a vacuum. Khrushchevsky was a product of his times just like anybody else. After the disastrous defeat at Boltava of the Zaporizhian Cossacks in 1709, Peter I, or the Great, of Russia retained some Kievan monks to legitimize a Russian claim to the Ukrainian lands, which the monks agreed to do as a face-saving measure. This is the beginning of the all-Russian historiographic scheme, which would go nearly unchecked for roughly a century. The scheme claims that the Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are all one people that belong under one nation which proved to be a somewhat convenient claim for Moscow when the Ukrainian National Revival began. The first seeds of this National Revival came in 1805 with the founding of the University of Kharkiv and its literary school, followed by that of Kiev University in 1834. The beginnings of the revival continued in a literary form via the works of Taras Shevchenko and the 1846 founding of the Brotherhood of St. Cyril and Methodius in Kiev, which also doubled as an early pro-Ukraine political organization. The Russian Empire was not willing to entertain the idea of a nationalist uprising in the territory and, in an attempt to forestall such an event, twice banned the publication of works in the Ukrainian language, once in 1863 and again in 1876. Austria-Hungary, however, was slightly more tolerant of Ukrainian movements at the time, which caused many Ukrainian scholars to move to Galicia and Bukovina, which were Ukrainian regions ruled by the Habsburgs. 
This being said, the stage was set for a proper national revival. What was necessary was a historical thread going back beyond the time of the Cossack Hetmanate to provide national heroes for the masses to cling to. Enter our subject today. Mikhailo Sergeyevich Khrushchevsky was born September 17, 1866 in Kelm and was now southern Poland. His father was most famous for writing a standard textbook in Old Church Slavonic. Both his parents were of clerical backgrounds. When Khrushchevsky was three years old, his parents moved to the Caucasus. But despite his physical distance from Ukraine, Khrushchevsky recounted the vital attachment to the Ukrainian element that I can recall within me from a very early age must, of course, be credited entirely to my father's legacy. His father's storytelling instilled within him a love for this then faraway land that his family called home. In 1880, his family moved to the city of Tbilisi, which is now the capital of Georgia. The country, not the U.S. state. This being a relatively cosmopolitan city, the young Khrushchevsky was exposed to a variety of ethnicities, expressing some form of discontent with Russian rule. This proved to be an influence on his later populist teachings. By 1883, he had come to regard Ukrainian as his true native tongue and began to find as much Ukrainian folk literature and music as he possibly could in order to help him master the language. He would build on this knowledge later in life to write a monumental history of that subject as well. Although he was an avid reader of contemporary Ukrainian periodicals, he was concerned by their fear of evoking separatist thought. So he decided he would do it himself. His early ideologies were of unabashed populism. He saw the Ukrainian peasantry as a beautiful people who had been unfairly exploited by a series of oppressors throughout history, and he decided his best course of action to change this was to write. And write. And write some more. His first works were folk romances, similar to the ones he had read in the libraries of Tbilisi. One work from this era is of special note, that being Bak al-Jakur, which told the story of the English occupation of Sudan, portraying them as hypocritical imperialists. This is an early example of Khrushchevsky writing against imperialist ambitions, but notably it is not those of the Russian Empire, an unusual topic in Khrushchevsky's body of works. Khrushchevsky would finally return to his homeland in 1886 with his enrollment at the History Department of St. Volodymyr University in Kiev. While there, he would have to remain away from political activity as well as the conditions of his father's funding of his education. By 1889, Khrushchevsky had met one Volodymyr Antonovich, who had become his advisor during work on his thesis. Antonovich was an early Ukrainian nationalist who shared some of Khrushchevsky's populist sympathies, and would also pass on anti-Polish thoughts that Khrushchevsky would carry, to some extent, through his entire life. Early works Khrushchevsky would publish include a history of Ukrainian castles and a monograph detailing the history of Kyiv until the 14th century. His master's thesis would cover the history of the Bar District in Venetia Oblast, and his graduate thesis was the history of the Kyiv area. This later thesis would prove important for his later works, as it would allow him access to the archives of Poland, Lithuania, and Belarus. In 1894, he moved to Habsburg-controlled Galicia to accept a position as a professor and chair of Universal History with reference to the history of Eastern Europe at Lviv University a position others were considered for, but what set Khrushchevsky apart was his ability, at least at this time, to remain apolitical. 
The fact that he was Ukrainian did not help him, however, due to ethnic tensions with the Poles at this time. However, his historical works were so impressive that Kaiser Franz Joseph I himself ordered his appointment to chair the department in April 1894. All of this happened before he was even able to defend his master's thesis. On September the 30th of that same year, Hrushevsky would give his first lecture, covering the history of the Ruse through the eyes of the popular masses. Khrushchevsky would tend to avoid great man historiography throughout his career, especially in these early stages. As a matter of fact, Khrushchevsky himself would probably wince at the fact that I'm doing an episode specifically about him. At the time, Khrushchevsky's lectures were held in the largest classroom Lviv University had to offer and was very popular with the Ukrainians on campus. Around now, he also became the editor of the Shevchenko Scientific Society's journal, turning it into the most important collection of Ukrainian works to this point. By 1897, Khrushchevsky had become president of the Scientific Society, which would allow him to make many contacts that could be useful for a political career. Also while in Lviv, he met his wife, Maria Voyakovska. Maria was from the peasantry. By marrying her, Khrushchevsky lost favor with much of Galician high society, who had daughters that they would have liked to marry him. This would become a trend in Khrushchevsky's life. He acted without regard for what was socially expected of him, which would earn him quite a few enemies. He would also begin collaborating with famous Ukrainian writer Ivan Frankl. They would have a mutually beneficial relationship, with Franco showing Western ideas to Khrushchevsky, and in return, Khrushchevsky would give Franco his historical ideas. Franco was also a key member of the Ukrainian National Democratic Party, where he argued for Ukrainian autonomy. Khrushchevsky, on the other hand, waited for a more opportune time to enter politics. He first decided to arouse the Ukrainian cultural movement in 1898 to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Ukrainian literature. 1898 would be most notable in Khrushchevsky's life, however, as it saw the publication of the first volume of the History of Ukraine Ruse, only to be immediately banned in the Russian Empire and largely shunned in Polish territories. The two combined made up most of Ukraine at this time. Another act of rebellion Khrushchevsky undertook followed his invitation to the Russian Archaeological Congress in Kiev. He submitted his paper for the Congress in the still-banned Ukrainian language. Surprisingly, the academics of the conference were willing to accept the paper, but the Russian government put a stop to this. This did not stop the paper, however, from being published in the Shevchenko Society's journal back at Lviv. Khrushchevsky would officially join Franco's National Democratic Party in 1899. Although the two would leave only a few months later, the two did make significant calls for a socialist platform in an autonomous, if not independent, Ukraine. All the while, he still made calls for universal suffrage. This would place him as the number one enemy of Russian imperialists. On a personal level, this was also an important time for Khrushchevsky. His only child, Katerina Khrushchevska, was born in 1900, and Father Serhi passed away the next year. He and Franco would also buy houses next door to each other in Lviv. This would enable the two men to have a conversation about the day's happenings every evening for a number of years. As for today, we will suffice to say Franco would be afflicted by a nervous disease in 1908, which he would not recover from. We will return to Franco another day. Things would also start going in Hrushevsky's favor on the world stage. 
1905, the Russian Empire suffered a humiliating defeat in the Russo-Japanese War, leading to the 1905 Revolution and the formation of the Duma, or the Russian Parliament. Among the changes in the government, a new interior minister was appointed who granted permission for his history to be printed in the Russian Empire. By this point, four volumes. Emboldened by the revolution, Khrushchevsky once again began to dabble in the political realm. He took a fairly mainstream Ukrainian view of the time, desiring a lifting on the ban on Ukrainian publications, and wanted a decentralization of the Russian government, believing the Duma would ultimately end up instituting the same all-Russian policies as the Tsar during his unchecked reign. The first such political success came in December of 1904, when the Russian Academy of Sciences, Kiev and Kharkiv Universities, and the Governor General of Kiev all recommended lifting the ban on Ukrainian publications. Also, several Ukrainians were elected to the Duma during its first elections in 1906. Naturally, a caucus formed, again demanding these linguistic rights and territorial autonomy. Wisely, they recognized that many other peoples were in a similar position. Finns, Poles, Estonians, Lithuanians, and many, many more. Alliances would have to be made with these other ethnicities to achieve autonomy from Russia. Although Khrushchevsky had no formal elected role, he was by now considered the unofficial leader of the national movement. As such, he would travel to St. Petersburg to advise the members of the caucus. This would leave Khrushchevsky in an interesting position, especially regarding the Poles. In the Russian Empire, the Poles and Ukrainians were in a similar position of relative weakness under Russian domination. However, in Austrian Galicia, the Poles held much more power and were reluctant to share it with the Ukrainians. Because of this, Khrushchevsky was forced to conduct a campaign for Ukrainian autonomy in Galicia as well. As a result of Austrian and Polish opposition to this campaign, Khrushchevsky's opinions on Poles changed according to geography. He favored an alliance with them in Russia, but attacked their influence in Galicia and Bukovina. As a matter of fact, in 1911 he would be forced from his role at the top of the Shevchenko Society due to his criticism of the Poles. In 1907, Khrushchevsky resumed his attendance at National Democrat meetings, where he emphasized the dangers of compromise with all Russians in the Duma. This would not last long, however, as he grew tired of the Democratic Party's continued cooperation with the Austrian government, even though they continued their imperialist ambitions. In this case, the annexation of Bosnia. He left the party once again in 1908. I should point out that Khrushchevsky, despite all he did for Ukraine and its national revival, was not a pleasant person to be around, especially if you were a critic of him. His generally abrasive personality made him quite easy to dislike. This was most likely a contributing factor to his final ouster from the leadership of the Shevchenko Society in 1914. By 1909, conditions in the Russian Empire had improved to the point where he chose to move back to Kiev. There, he would head the Ukrainian Scientific Society, the Russian equivalent to the Shevchenko Society, founded in 1906. In Kiev, Khrushchevsky would move into a large house which would contain a grand library and a personal museum of Ukrainian artifacts he collected in his years in academia. It was even rumored that Khrushchevsky was a mason and used his house as a Masonic temple on occasion. In spring of 1914, the first Ukrainian mass demonstration in the Russian Empire was held. Russian conservatives again placed Khrushchevsky at his head and called to forbid Khrushchevsky from entering Russia and to close his Ukrainian scientific society. 
While this debate was playing out, however, another series of events took place that you might be familiar with. On June the 28th of 1914, Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo by a Bosnian nationalist, launching a series of events that would ignite the First World War. While this was all going on, Khrushchevsky was vacationing with his family in the Austrian-held Carpathian Mountains. The situation for him was not good. The Austrians were suspicious of Khrushchevsky as a Russophile, while the Russians viewed him as an Austrophile. As such, the Russians issued an arrest warrant for him in August 1914, and the Austrians would also do so. But oddly, they waited until after he had already left Austria-Hungary. On top of this, the Polish authorities began to strike at the Ukrainian intelligentsia in the Habsburg realms. He and his family needed to run. But how? He could not simply travel back to Lviv, as all the meaningful forms of transport were already being used by the Habsburg military. Fortunately for Khrushchevsky, he had not quite alienated all of the National Democrats from his cause. The Union for the Liberation of Ukraine, formed by Ukrainian socialist emigres from the Russian Empire in August of 1914, made arrangements for Khrushchevsky to travel to Vienna on September the 24th. From there, he fled to the still-neutral Italy. Some of his colleagues who remained in Kyiv sent a telegraph for him to return as soon as he possibly could as his associations with Galicia allowed the Russian Empire to paint Ukrainians as enemies of the Russian nation. He arrived in November, returning through Romania. Upon arrival, he immediately met with the Society of Ukrainian Progressives, another splinter group of the National Democrats, who largely agreed with Khrushchevsky's lines of reasoning. Khrushchevsky would inform them of the persecutions of the intelligentsia going on in Galicia. It would not take long for the Russian authorities to become aware of Khrushchevsky's presence in Kyiv. The morning after his return, the Russian police searched his house looking to arrest him, but, being the workaholic he was, he already left for a meeting with another organization in Kyiv. Becoming aware of that police search later in the day, Khrushchevsky turned himself in that same evening. Because Russian offensives had already captured Lviv by this time, the Russians were also to search his house there. While detained, the original intention of the Russian authorities was to exile him to Siberia. However, Khrushchevsky had an unexpected guardian angel, the Russian academics. Because of su successful lobbying by several Russian historians, he spent the early years of the war in Symbiosk, a university city with a large library where he could conduct his research. By 1916, he was even allowed to reside in Kazan and eventually Moscow itself. If I go much farther, I will begin covering the events of the Russian Revolution and Khrushchevsky's involvement in it, which I think is a good stopping point to pick up for the next episode. Before I conclude this episode, however, I would like to discuss Khrushchevsky's historical writings and what set his histories apart from the all-Russian model. To begin this discussion, we first need to know what Khrushchevsky was trying to differentiate from. As I've alluded to before, the Ukrainian scheme Khrushchevsky was attempting to set up focused on the story of the Ukrainian people as it passed from time to time. This is not just out of Khrushchevsky's populist convictions, but out of necessity. For much of history, Ukraine has not had a country to track the history of. If Khrushchevsky were to base Ukrainian history on those of states, of nations, there would be gaps spanning entire centuries. Russian historians in this regard were more fortunate. 
they had a relatively continuous collection of states to track the history of, allowing them to base their histories on those of governments and dynasties. The first state usually encountered in the traditional Russian scheme is the Kiev and the Rus. As both the Ukrainians and Russians traced their heritage back to the Rus, R Russians were able to claim a common ancestry, which is only partly true, and used to claim that the uh, Little Russians and Great Russians were two branches of one people. And this is the generous Russian view. Other Russian historians simply ignored the topic of the Ukrainians as a whole. This is where Khrushchevsky comes in. What he had to do was to both make a compelling argument that the Little Russians were actually their own distinct people. And to do this, he had to both discredit the Russian scheme and construct one of his own. The first point Khrushchevsky chose to attack was that linking the Kievan Ruse to the Vladimir Suzdal Principality. Why is it that the Great Russians lived near the Dnipro until the 13th century and then up and moved 400 miles to the northeast? Was this truly one people, or simply the only link Russian historians could find to support their claims? The Russians claim this migration occurred because of the Mongols. Russian historians claim that the Mongols devastated the land that is now Ukraine more thoroughly than other areas of Eastern Europe, forcing the Rus to migrate northeast. This means that who would eventually become the Ukrainians were simply immigrants to the land who came from Turkey and Poland. Khrushchevsky pointed out several flaws in this line of thinking. One of the primary sources of evidence that the Russians claimed for the devastation of Ukraine was a chronicle that stated a visiting noble at the time was forced to reside on an island during his stay in Kiev. Was this because the rest of the city was destroyed? Khrushchevsky refuted this claim by providing evidence of several other occasions of princes building castles on islands due to their easy-to-defend position. And this is over a century before the Mongol invasions. Another source used to back up the Russian claims of mass emigration was that of a noble leading a group of several hundred from Kiev to the Vladimir Principality in the 1340s, a very large group from medieval times. But still not an entire people. Khrushchevsky pointed out one critical flaw in this line of thinking. Note that I didn't say a group of several hundred people, I said a noble leading several hundred people. Who would the Mongols target first? The nobles. They hold the power and pose the largest threat to Mongol rule. It is only natural the nobles would want to leave to protect themselves from being targeted by the Mongols. Likewise, this leaves another facet of the Russian theory unexplained. Turks and Poles moving into Ukraine. Why exactly would those li living relatively comfortably in the Ottoman Empire and in the Carpathian Mountains want to subject themselves to Mongol rule? In making these claims, Khrushchevsky attempted to claim the Rus exclusively for Ukraine, viewing the Vladimir Principality as a better starting point for Russia than the Kiev and the Rus. This was critical to form a historical founding point for the Ukrainian people. This also served as one of two historical high points for them. The other such period, Khrushchevsky pointed out, was that of the Cossacks. Other eras were viewed as declines, and therefore, he was able to make a strong parallel with his own time. He was attempting to lift a new Ukraine, born of the revival of the masses, into one of those boom times. How successful would uh, this revival be? We shall find out in the next episode, in which we cover Khrushchevsky from the Russian Revolution until his death. If you're interested in learning more about Khrushchevsky, most of my material for this episode came from Thomas Primark's biography of uh, Khrushchevsky and Sarah Plokis' Unmaking Imperial Russia. Both of these are excellent books, and I highly recommend reading them if you are interested in the topic. 
If you would like to help the effort to send medical supplies to people who need it in Ukraine, please consider donating to the Ukrainian History Podcast Patreon page if you'd like a small cut to go towards the podcast, or donate to Nazem for Ukraine directly. Thank you very much for tuning in, and as always, Slava Ukraine!